You're listening to Labor Wave Revolution Radio. If there's nothing you're going for specifically, then there's no way of measuring your own success, right? And there's no form of accountability. Suits capitalism perfectly fine for people to move into this position of making symbolic opposition to the system rather than concrete steps forward. Labor Wave spoke with Marion Garneau, editor of the website Organizing Work, which describes itself as a platform for discussing workplace organizing. We discussed the piece featured on Organizing Work written by Marion Garneau titled The Women's Strike Reconsidered, which will be linked in our show's description. In this piece, our guest provided a critical review of the new book Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto written collectively by Cinzia Rutza, Tifi Bhattacharya, and Nancy Fraser. The conversation focused on the book's lack of a strategic plan for effectively waging a strike on the level of reproduction. To be celebrated are the book's discussions over the role of unpaid reproductive labor serving as a necessary precondition for capitalist domination and its disavowal of liberal lean-in feminism. However, the same cannot be said, argues our guest, on the book's strategic and tactical content. You can find Marianne Garneau's work at organizing.work. That is, simply type into the URL organizing.work. There's no .com, there's no .org. I don't know how that works, but it does. There's also a host of other excellent articles and critical reviews to be found on the website organizing.work. Here at LaborWave, we like to ask you, our listeners, to support us by liking us on facebook.com backslash LaborWave, following us on soundcloud.com backslash LaborWave, and giving us positive reviews on iTunes, as this helps spread our content to more listeners. We also play the music of John Dwyer of the OCs and Damage Bug, as Mr. John Dwyer has given us express permission to use his music without copyright, so long as we don't, quote, break to the scary right. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Marion Garneau. Your review of Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto, focuses primarily on the critique of the strike tactic that's put forth by the book's authors, Chintzia Rutsa, Tifi Bhattacharya, and Nancy Fraser. So I want to begin with their argument. What claims do they make about the limitations of current uses of labor strikes, and how does a women's strike advance new forms of class struggle? So they seem to be saying that the women's strike is a democratization and an innovation on the usual strike tactics. So they're critical of uh, the usual strike tactics centering around the workforce, and they think that the women's strike tactic, which involves people who are not necessarily located in a workforce and are not necessarily striking against their employer, they think that's a more democratic form of strike. It's broadening the strike. They think it's, they seem to think it's a necessary intervention on your standard strike tactic. And uh, they think that because the working class can be found in different forms nowadays, you know, it should definitely include people who don't work for a wage, namely people who are engaged in reproductive labor, so housewives, however you want to call those people. Um, And they have a moment, at least, where they seem to think that unions have been gatekeeping around the notion of a strike, whereas we really need to broaden it. 
And when we broaden it, it's more, um, it's more interesting, it's more dynamic, it addresses broader things than uh, simple economic concerns around the workplace, and so on and so forth. So that is my understanding of their argument. And you've been critical of labor strikes as well, or how unions deploy strikes. In what ways have you criticized labor unions? You're right, I am. And that's why I wrote this review, because I was interested in their reflection on this new, what they think is a new strike tactic, and how it really works and how effective it is. I'm critical of labor strikes because, um, as others have pointed out, like Jane McAlevey, who I mentioned in my review, a lot of times labor strikes nowadays can be these really sort of symbolic stage-managed affairs. So they're short duration, and insofar as they do withdraw labor from the workforce, it's not really a long, sustained attempt to hurt the employer until they give in. It's more of a demonstration of this is our position, this is who we have on side, you know, it rallies some members from the community, um, it makes the moral case for what they want, and it's less like the old time strike that we tend to think of where you are refusing to produce profits effectively until the employer gives in to your demands. And so, uh, that's a, critic, a critique I have of strikes, but I also have authors who have written for the Organizing Work website, which I run, where they have mentioned how even when you go out on an all-out strike and you really are withdrawing your labor power, there's a way in which that still tends to be stage-managed by union bureaucracies, and it doesn't really empower workers the way that you can empower yourselves by taking more control over the work process. So while you're at work and in the workplace, refusing to work for, say, 15 minutes if somebody has been unjustly disciplined by a supervisor or refusing processes that are unsafe, you know, these are these deepen our control of work and workflow and and our sort of not to get too technical about it, but what theorists call our self-activity as a class. So the working class acting as the working class in an empowered way. And if you're all standing outside the workplace, you know, eating hot dogs and watching cars honk at you, you're kind of less involved in having your hands on the levers of production that way. So with your review of the book, you write that, quote, the women's strike is built on two shaky premises, a needless hostility to labor unions and a total illusion of what it would mean to strike effectively in the area of reproductive labor, end quote. Uh, and I want to focus a little bit on the first point. So we've already established that you've made criticisms of labor unions and their management of strikes as well. But you say specifically these authors have a misplaced hostility to labor unions. So what points of their criticisms are misplaced? To clarify, they don't spend a lot of the book saying, um, labor unions are bad, labor unions are obsolete, you know, we shouldn't participate in labor unions or whatever. But this is my analysis of what they do in the book. Because what they do in the book is they say, look, labor unions have falling participation or falling membership. And they trace that to the fall in the number of manufacturing jobs. I take issue with that story to begin with because it's not actually accurate for a couple of reasons. First of all, labor membership, labor union membership declined even while manufacturing jobs increased through the 90s in the United States. So it's not empirically accurate. Second, the reason why labor 
union membership declined is a political story. And it's important not to obscure that political story. It's a matter of business and government attacking and undermining workers' ability to organize. What I don't see in the book is any serious plan or recommendation to reunionize the working class. So they almost seem to kind of have this hands-off well, unions were a thing attached to manufacturing and the workplace, the workforce doesn't work in manufacturing anymore. They work in these kind of low grade service jobs. They work in temporary flexible arrangements. They work several jobs at a time. And so there's this kind of passivity about that story and depoliticization of that story. And then on top of that, they're not really calling for um, reorganizing the working class. Instead, they want us to redirect our excitement and our efforts towards this more diffuse idea of the women's strike, which, as far as I'm concerned, is really more of a protest than a strike. And something else you mentioned in the review is how where the, uh, where the authors are attentive to redefining the working class as multiracial, multigender, their vision and conception of a union member is very flat and this like white man manufacturing worker. Could you, could you just tell us why that's an inaccurate vision of a union member? I think that it's very popular in North American consciousness, especially to associate unions with things like auto manufacturing plants, right? So what we call single paycheck earners, so one person able to support a household based on their job, which is a full-time job with benefits, with a pension, an indefinite uh, appointment as opposed to part-time or casual or seasonal or temp temporary. And we forget that that picture has changed a lot over time. So in the United States, actually, the biggest sector that's unionized is actually what you can broadly call security. So between police, um, prison guards, uh, security, private security, that kind of thing. That's the, from my understanding, looking at the most recent uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics sources, that's the biggest sector that's unionized. But then after that, you've got people who work in public sector jobs, people who work in hospitals, people who work for government, people who work in education. And a lot of those workers tend to be um, female, Hispanic, African-American. In fact, black women are overrepresented among union uh, unionized workers relative to the general workforce population. And again, it's not that the authors of the book are outright denying those facts, but they go along with a kind of stale and inaccurate story that we have that unions belonged to that single paycheck earner manufacturer on a say an assembly line or whatever as opposed to belonging to um you know women and women of color in particular working in things like public sector jobs now the main source of the criticism you leverage is just the lack of an effective strategy for striking in the area of reproductive labor so you contend that the international women's strike waffles between deciding whether it's a strike or a protest. And you wrote that, quote, if IWS is a strike, it's not a very well organized one. So what makes the international women's strike a poorly organized strike? So the authors of the book, two of them at least, or I think maybe all of them, 
Uh, in the book that itself, they say we are organizers of the international women's strike in the U.S. Two of them are located in New York. I've been to the events in New York, and I've visited the website and read the literature and, and, and seen their, their appeals and their calls for people to participate. And one of the things involved in their appeals to people to participate is it says something like, leave work an hour early. Right. So take an hour off of your paid job, leave work an hour early and then come and join us and we'll have a rally. Those are the New York events. And I think that's other events as well. If you tell the average worker to leave their job an hour early for the average worker, the consequence of that will be discipline, if not outright termination. That is an extraordinarily risky thing. It's not something that you should ever counsel people to do without having first built an actual robust union in that workplace, whether it's had an election under the National Labor Relations Board or not. You need the workers in that workplace to be acting together and have each other's back and have developed that solidarity and that strength in numbers so that they can weather any co consequences from the employer so that they are stronger than the employer. You cannot simply tell people to leave work an hour early. The only people who can afford to, if their response is, well, look, we're not asking a fast food worker to leave work an hour early. We know it's too risky for them. First of all, that's not in the messaging. And second of all, then you're only appealing to people who can afford to do it. And if they can afford to do it, then that's an entirely different category of worker. You know, if you, for, for whatever reason in your labor relationship with your employer, either because you have tenure or because you are friends with your employer or they gave you special permission or you are high enough in the ranks, have the ability to leave work an hour early, then that's, something, that's not something that applies to the majority of workers. And at that point, I don't know in what sense we're talking about a strike anymore, right? So the branding of this as a strike, I find to be um, kind of an equivocation, a muddying of the waters. And it, it's at the very least a, a muddying of the waters. And at worst, it's just bad organizing advice to tell workers to leave work an hour early unless you build the kind of structure that allows them to do that. I've noticed, too, that this branding of protests as strikes, it seems like it's beyond just even the international women's strike. Like, for instance, recently we saw the climate strike. And I wonder if you have the same kind of thoughts and reactions to that. Is in what ways is this actually a strike? What are people, what are the demands? What are people really trying to do and how are they organizing it as a strike? Do you think there's something just going on? Like, why is the word strike such a fad right now? I think that's a good question. I think that um, there's some understanding that the word strike carries more cachet than the word protest. Like we've sort of figured out on the left that protests, even really big protests, have a limited, limited effectiveness. And so we are tending towards the word strike instead. And I will say, and I said this in my review, I'm not such a chauvinist that I think that strikes are a word that only pertain to workplaces. For example, there was a very successful and well-organized strike that I wrote an article about uh, among students in Quebec in 2012, and there have been others in the past, where they quit going to class by the tens of thousands in protest of a government proposal to dramatically raise their tuition. And they basically shut the university system down and they 
engaged in very militant protests in the street, uh, blockading government buildings and streets. And the government that had proposed that tuition increase fell and a new government came in place with the promise not to implement that tuition increase. That was a successful strike. When it comes to the climate strike that is largely student driven, you know, I'm not here to drag like children and their tactics and how they want to brand those tactics. You know, thank God for those kids and what they're doing. And uh, they are trying to save us from inaction on climate change, which is a matter of life and death for the entire population. And, and, and I'm very grateful for what they're doing. I'm not trying to drag those kids, for example. However, I take major issue with mature Marxist theorists muddying the waters, as I've said, and, and fudging differences, uh, fudging categories, the difference between a strike and a protest. And to address something, because I got flack for this after my review came out, I focused too much on the North American context and on the New York context in particular. And in fact, there are these massive, massive mass movements in South America, in Argentina, in Chile, in Spain, and in Europe, where uh, everybody goes out into the streets and takes action. And in fact, <laughs> those things too, they're not so much a broadening of the notion of a strike as they are the intensification of protest. There is labor union buy-in in those things, but the action there is also very symbolic. I mean, it's alien to us in, in North America, but elsewhere in the world, there is a tradition of labor unions, which are often tied to social democratic electoral parties, bringing their members out into the streets for political protest. These are things that last a couple hours at a time. It's normal there. In Spain, it's legally protected in other countries as well. And it's just understood by the employers, by the participants in the strike by society at large, that this is a kind of like robust um, celebration protest type activity within those social democracies, let's say. It is not a strike in the sense of throwing a particular demand on a particular target and insisting on delivery of that demand and holding them hostage until you give them that. You know, and these 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 strikes, these mass movements in Chile and Argentina, wherever, they have very honorable and valid objectives, including ending violence against women, or broadening reproductive rights, or ending the wage gap, what have you. All of those goals are supportable, but they're not leveraging a particular demand against a particular target and withdrawing labor until they get that. It's intensification of protest rather than the broadening of strike.
And on this note about actions without a demand, you talk about how the authors of the book, Feminism for the 99%, purposefully avoid prescribing any alternatives. And you suggest that they also place specific objectives on the back burner, making it appear that they're more interested in just building a coalition now and will, quote, worry about actual change later. I really like this quote that you have. You write, all of this reminds me of a tendency on the left right now to say quite seriously that our uncompromising and unrelenting goal is and must be full communism. Free, universal childcare in the United States, on the other hand, nah, not realistic. So in building class power, why is it necessary to tie a strategic plan to specific goals? It's necessary because that is, first of all, that's how change is more realistically made. I think our 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 aims and our objectives should be as as high as we want them to be. They should trend towards full communism. But the way that you actually develop working class power is by taking on things and winning them. And that has been my experience, for example, as an organizer, I've helped workers organize in workplaces. You take, and my specific advice to them is, you take on something small, some low hanging fruit to start with, so that you get a taste of your own activity and a taste of your own power. And it's also kind of a stress test. Can we do this? You know, or are we still too vulnerable, feeling too afraid? Will some of us kind of like back out at the last second and try to cut a side deal with the employer? You have to do this to develop your own capacity. The other reason why it's really important to have concrete objectives uh, concrete demands against specific targets is because if there's nothing you're going for specifically, then there's no way of measuring your own success, right? And there's no form of accountability. If you say, hey, we're for we're for all full communism and we are anti-capitalist and we have the right line and you go out into the streets and you do that year after year and you know, your objective is so enormous that there's, of course you don't achieve it and there's nothing measurable by which you can be evaluated, then there's no accountability, right? How do you measure what that person or entity or movement is actually delivering for the working class if they don't have actual benchmarks that they're holding themselves to? Yeah, I, I wonder too, what do you feel is the kind of underlying reason for these these full-on demands for revolution without any strategic plan to achieve it. Like why I, I agree that in my experience too, I encounter that sensibility a lot of like, oh, the Green New Deal is not perfect and it's just more green growth and it's not anti-capitalist. So forget that. That's off the table. All we need is full decolonization now. Um, right. <laughs> is there some historical reasons for this? Like why is the left or radicals in general so uh, adverse to strategic planning? I think that it's a story of um, frustration on the part of the left. I think it's a story of our intense marginalization, uh, mostly by uh, this state, by capitalism. And it's an expression of frustration. It's, a, it's an expression of folks kind of feeling their own powerlessness. Um, but it's a mistake. And, 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 one thing that I see all the time is what I jokingly call like social democracy with red and black flags, where, where people speak a very militant anti-capitalist line, 
but they are completely at a loss for what to do strategically, right? So they don't know how to build working class power and they don't have the experience or practical guidance to start with something small and measurable. And so they just run out into the streets and scream their uh, opposition to capitalism and to uh, the capitalist state. And there's really effectively no difference between that and what the left loves to malign, like things like the pussy hat marches, right? Or um, calling your representative in Congress and voicing your dissent or disagreement with their policy position. And so the left, in trying to dissociate itself from uh, social democracy and boring electoral politics ends up actually copying those methods, which is just making a moral argument against the badness of the system or the badness of a particular policy. And I think that that probably has to do with the way that any real system of building working class power in the form of unions, as we've talked about, or in the form of tenant associations or or in the form of uh, student uh, unions or associations, have been thoroughly undermined and destroyed. And so where you lack that tradition and lack that institutional knowledge and that capacity to build those kinds of organs of working class power, you end up reaching for more symbolic efforts. And on those lines of like actions without demands and lack of strategic content, you argue that the ambiguity of the tactic of the international women's strike suits capitalism just fine. You have a whole reason for elaborating that claim. So why is the lack of demands tolerable for neoliberal capitalism? If there is nothing measurable you're going after and no one in particular you're asking for it from, then there, and there's no timeline and there's no specificity to this, then they can just continue ignoring you, right? And you can continue making your demands and they can continue ignoring you. And there's no um, time frame or benchmark where that has to end. And so it suits capitalism perfectly fine for people to move into this position of making symbolic opposition to the system rather than concrete steps forward. So you were in the article talking a lot about after the criticism, like how do we actually address some of these limitations of what the international women's strike is calling for? And two of the things that you ask is, one, how does a women's strike actually work? And two, who are the actual targets of a women's strike? And you write that, quote, if I strike in a workplace, my intention is for my employer to lose those profits forever. If I strike my reproductive labor, say to attend the women's strike, it will either create a backlog of work, dishes, shopping for me to do later, or that work will have to be devolved onto someone else paid or unpaid, end quote. So with that, I wanted to ask you two questions. One, who should be the targets for reproductive labor demands? And two, can reproductive strikes even work at all in challenging women's oppression under capitalism? And if not, what can? That I think is a huge question and it's not one with easy answers and it's not one that I pretend to have the answers to either. And what I find lacking in this particular book is any serious attempt at an answer. So what I see in the book is the author saying, look, you know, these uh, strikes that have, these these social strikes or mass strikes or feminist strikes that have taken place in South America and in Europe have simultaneously been reproductive labor strikes because 
women that day allegedly are saying, we're not going to do any housework. We're not going to do uh, what, whatever it is, childcare, dishes, ironing, cooking, shopping, emotional labor. Um, we are going to abstain not just from our paid work, but from our unpaid work, which just as much sustains capitalism. Now, I completely agree that that unpaid work just as much sustains capitalism. It's part of the reproduction of society without which capitalism would have no workers to employ. Um, there wouldn't be anything at all. So I completely agree about the value of that work. But yeah, the question is, how do you strike it? Because as I say, and as you quoted, so I, I myself am a, a stay-at-home mom right now. If I don't do that work, it either just piles up waiting for me for when I go back to it, which is what I suspect happens in a lot of the cases of these women's strikes, or maybe at best, I devolve it onto, let's say, my husband or another family member. Well, that's just another person doing unpaid work. If, if my husband picks up that slack, maybe if he was a particularly obtuse person, he now understands how much I actually do and what my contribution is to society. And there may be instances where that happens. But for the most, I mean, for, for me personally, my husband is not an obtuse person that way. I'm not making any headway by just handing that reproductive labor over to him. And more to the point, capitalism does not care. It doesn't care who picks up that slack and who does that reproductive labor. It's not really a strike. It's going to get done either way. You know, and, and as I point out, the people who command our reproductive labor, whether they're our children or our aging parents or our six spouses or the community, we don't actually have an oppositional relationship to them. We're not trying to make them suffer. Suffer. We don't want to withhold that labor from them completely. We might hand it off to someone else. I may give my children to someone else to take care of them, either paid or unpaid, but I'm not trying to get my children not taken care of for four hours while I'm participating in a women's march. So that, that doesn't necessarily imply it's impossible to strike reproductive labor, but it's actually at least going to be a very different situation than striking paid labor. And it becomes a very complicated question, you know, what that strike is, how it operates, who it's hurting or trying to hurt strategically, and who it's exacting um, concessions from. Absolutely. And you suggest that Practically speaking, a women's strike would at least have to have its target as the state. Why would that be the case? First of all, the idea that uh, reproductive labor sustains capitalism goes back at least to the 70s. Arguably, there were female theorists mostly who were talking about it even in the 19th century, but it goes at least back to the 70s where female theorists, Marxist theorists pointed out that um, capitalism needed this uh, in a fundamental way and that it should therefore be valued under capitalism. And one of the ways of valuing that is to, one suggestion was to pay wages for housework. Now that was never really a demand to actually disperse money to say housewives on the basis of here's 20 bucks for doing the laundry, here's 40 bucks for doing dinner. It was turned into a demand for things like equal pay for equal work, so gender pay equity, um, a, a higher prevailing wage for waged work, or maybe something like a universal basic income, because there's no way to itemize and actually hourly, wagedly pay house, household work, right? 
So that was the way that demand cashed out. And nowadays, again, if we want to make a shift in the allocation of domestic or unpaid labor, uh, reproductive labor, or if we want to change um, how it's valued within capitalism and who it falls on, then it's not clear what we should ask for other than, for example, things like a universal childcare program. I mean, one way of alleviating that unpaid reproductive labor when it comes to, for example, child rearing is to have a universal child care program. There are social democracies, there are capitalist states that have much more robust offerings in terms of state-subsidized child care than in the United States, which I think ranks probably last. If you had a state-provided or insured universal child care program, that frees those women up from doing that work themselves or those primary caregivers from doing it themselves in an unpaid way, in a way unrecognized by capitalism. And uh, it prevents the situation that the authors describe in the book of just devolving it onto somebody else, like putting on another woman, putting on a woman from um, a non-industrialized country who comes to this country and leaves her own kids behind to get paid a miserly wage in order to do it for a white woman. Um, That's the kind of thing that might make a difference, right? Not so much socially pressuring, say, men in society to recognize women's contributions more, but something like a universal child care program, or for that matter, a universal health care program, um, you know, more adequate subsidization of housing, of social welfare in general. So those to me seem like the kinds of things that we should be targeting when it comes to reproductive labor. And instead, what you get with the women's strike and with the way that we canonize or remember previous activity in this area, like the Icelandic women's strike in 1975, I think it was, is we turn that into a story of how, oh, the women stopped doing things for a day. They stopped taking care of kids and stopped cooking and stopped doing their domestic labor for a day. And all of a sudden the country woke up and then like there was more equality for women after that. That's absolute nonsense. And one of the reasons it's nonsense is because you don't change the structural um, configuration of society and of power relations in society by, for example, making a moral argument and visiting consequences upon individual people, like individual husbands or something for a day. And you also highlight how it's not appropriate to suggest that victories in the workplace don't also have a positive impact on the role of unpaid reproductive labor. Uh, So I wanted to conclude by just asking a little bit about your own experience with like workplace victories and how has that helped uh, women's lives as well as reduced or minimized some of those pressures that come from reproductive labor that keeps capitalism afloat. Again, to to turn back to the big picture and Bureau of Labor Statistics kind of uh, information, the wage gap is smaller among unionized workers. Um, there is generally less insecurity among female unionized workers. And again, uh, to some extent, female workers are overrepresented by unions. My own personal experience has mostly revolved around organizing servers at a diner in Times Square. And they have won a number of things that are not only integral to their uh, reproductive labor, but that are unusual for the restaurant industry. The example I give is the securing of a lactation room for them to pump breast milk upon returning to work after having children, which three or four workers have already taken advantage of, which the employer had always refused to provide in the past. 
um, which is very rare in the restaurant industry, even though it is mandated by law. Uh, and the employer had been sued for not providing this and still didn't turn around and provide this. But because these workers have organized and have become so powerful, the employer now provides them a lactation room. And in fact, the third or fourth person to return from work she was like, this is all fine and good. I like this place, but I want my own fridge in this room. And I don't want to have to just use the, 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 the fridge behind the bar because that's weird to me. And so she demanded a fridge and the manager provided a fridge. Likewise, in the summer, there was an issue where there were carbon monoxide leaks. And the owner was completely trying to dismiss this as a health and safety concern. He was lying about it. He was as we laughed about gaslighting the workers about it by pretending it was carbon dioxide and pretending it wasn't happening. And these workers protected themselves, several, several of whom at the time were pregnant, by engaging in a strike and by forcing the employer to own up to the problem, to conduct inspections, to post the results of those inspections, and shutting the restaurant down until he did that. Funny enough, actually, when they shut the restaurant down, they actually ended up getting paid by the owner while they were on strike, which is another thing that's practically unheard of. But it's because they've developed such a capacity for collective action driven by themselves as workers. So again, the, the things that um, pertain to reproductive labor, whether it's wages and your ability to reproduce yourself or your family, uh, which they've also won a lot of concessions on, or whether it's health and safety or whether it's accommodation, these are the kinds of things that are best secured through, in a workplace, a group of workers very actively banded together, having each other's back with the ability to act in lockstep with one another. When it comes to something like an apartment building, you want that kind of um, configuration or, or relationship on the part of the tenants. When it comes to students, you want that on the part of the students. I do not think that power is developed by calling people out into the streets because that is not a location where we have power. And you may get a tremendous number of people out into the streets. That still doesn't mean that that's a significant deployment of power. Do protests apply pressure to those in power? Yes, of course, they apply some amount of pressure. But the real power that we have as the working class, even though we may be fragmented and even though we may be sometimes not employed for a wage or working three or four part-time precarious jobs or students or combining any number of these things, our power has to do with the fact that we have the our hands on the levers of production and we can grind the system to a halt if we learn how to use that power in solidarity with one another. With the story of the diner that you helped organize as well, you noted how the uh, boss apparently went on record to say that those three years of organizing were the worst three years of his life <laughs> and that he's terrified apparently now of the workers. Could you tell a little bit about what that experience is like for workers to now know that their boss is actually petrified of demands that they will make of them? It's, it's been life transforming and I've watched them undergo this because I became involved at a time when they were all very afraid. They were being fired at the rate of one or two a week. The uh, management was especially picking off longer term workers, older workers, people who dared use the in-house uh, insurance, health insurance plan, people who um, were basically more secure and more confident in asking for what they needed or in prosecuting their rights. And they were just being gotten rid of for a younger, more flexible, uh, wide-eyed, sort of afraid kind of workforce. 
And so three years ago, they were very upset by this. Uh, there were a bunch of new policies that were making their lives miserable on the job. And over the course of those three years, they organized. They, it was a very difficult battle at times. There were there was a mass two mass firings, which we later got uh, reversed at the Labor Relations Board. But now, three years later, they are in a position where they are they feel tremendously empowered, and whatever they need and whatever accommodations they need, they get. Early on, I remember there was a meeting where, so this is a, called Ellen Stardust Diner, and it's the home of the singing waitstaff, and it's where a lot of folks work in between booked performing gigs um, on Broadway, off-Broadway, on tours, on cruise ships, what have you. And I remember there was a meeting very early on, and people were going around the room introducing themselves, and a lot of workers said, oh, you know, I'm proud to work at this place, and I enjoy working at this place. Most of them had been there for a number of years. And then it came around to this one woman and she said, you know, I've never been proud of working here. I considered it kind of a landing spot because I couldn't book a major performing gig and I didn't exactly brag to people that I worked at this particular place. But then when we formed our union and started taking action, I started bragging to people about the fact that this is where I work. She said, I would leave my uniform shirt on after I left my shift so that people could see that I worked there because the media story was out about how they'd formed a union and were taking action against the boss. So it transformed at least this one worker from having experience of, you know, you go into work and you're told what to do and it's not a source of empowerment and you are often harassed or abused or treated unfairly. And it completely reversed that where all of a sudden work became a place where she felt empowered and autonomous and capable well, with that, Marianne Garneau, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on Labor Wave, and I hope we can have you again soon and keep having these conversations. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 